Well, good morning again. I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. find ourselves in the second half of this chapter, this uh, penultimate chapter in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The second half of Paul's letter comes in the second half, our second half of Paul of chapter five comes in the second half of the letter, which we have been observing is directed towards devotion where we recognize the first three chapters being dedicated to doctrine. And here in the second half of the fifth chapter, we find practical helps towards our devotion to God, towards our Christian walk. As Paul uses that analogy uh, multiple times here in the second half of his epistle, even to the point where we he finds the, the necessary uh, exhortation that he would say awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you therefore be careful how you walk not as unwise men but as wise and here we see in these general precepts for the Christian life another turn a turn towards specifically this idea of being filled Follow along as I read for us, for context, Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 8 through verse 21. The word of the Lord says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, awake sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help now. O Lord, these are your words. We are thankful that we have them, that you have preserved them, We are also thankful, Lord, that you give us your spirit so that they are made alive to us. They're able to pierce even to the soul. Lord, that we pray that my words would be circumspect to your word, trained, accurate, and true, so that your people may not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We ask these things for your glory alone. 
He also asks it for our good. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we observed a few weeks back in the first few verses of our passage, or specifically beginning in verse 15 of the passage, in verse, beginning in verse 15, we were encouraged to be careful, to be wise, to be knowledgeable, and to be filled. And we see that this being filled comes to us by way of, uh, in the original language, the passive voice, for it was to be a work of the Spirit, the Spirit being the agent and us being the patient. The word is also in the continuous tense, as it is to be attended to by the believer. So where the great physician has worked upon the heart of the believer and livened it to uh, give it a new oughtness, as C.S. Lewis says, to give it new life, uh, to be obedient, to be not a slave to unrighteousness, but a slave to righteousness. It is to be attended then by the believer in the power of the Spirit. And now in verses 19 through 21, we saw that there were four participles that are uh, the fruits of Paul's last exhortation to be filled. And then even beyond that, we're going to see uh, to greater length, beginning in verse 22 through chapter 6, verse 9, this idea of what it means to be filled in relationship to others, specifically husbands and wives, children to parents, superiors and inferiors, or masters and slaves. And so we are to be first here in verse 19. That first participle is to speak to one another, speaking to one another. The reality of our Christian profession is most tested by the way we treat and relate to other Christians. For the New Testament, this is a truth of the greatest importance. John writes in his first letter, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God who he has not seen? And so we see that our words matter. How we relate to one another, how we speak to one another exposes to how we think of God. And then we were exhorted to sing to one another. Singing as a result of being filled in the Spirit, not as a result of the emotional lift of the music, but as to it testifying to, to the work of the Spirit, which is the very work of God. And so we recognize that though we seek to be, engage our talents to the greatest of our, our abilities, our talents are not of first importance when it comes to singing. It is the melody of the heart that is of first importance. And so we sing from our hearts to the Lord. And this morning we now address the last two participles, the giving thanks and the subjecting to one another. In many ways, these are the two hardest of the participles where we might have struggle in speaking to one another in, in a way that honors the Lord. I would imagine that we may struggle more with this idea of giving thanks for all things at all times. For we are a culture accustomed to complaint. It, 
I don't know when they first began in businesses, but you can't have a business without a complaint department, without quality control, without somebody that's going to receive feedback for products. Now, certainly products that are made poorly and don't perform to the level that they were made to perform to is one thing, but I'm sure if you've ever talked with anybody in any of those departments, you would find the complaints are not limited to performance. And so it is with our culture, we too can be susceptible to this complaining spirit of the age. And so we are exalted, exhorted here to give thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even uh, to God, even the Father. And if that wasn't hard enough, then comes the last participle, subjecting to one another and be subject to one another in the fear of the Lord. How many troubles in the church could be solved with thanksgiving and subjection, biblical subjection, humility of mind? I think many could be solved. I think the spirit at work in Paul here obviously understands that. And so he gives these words of exhortation to Ephesus and by way of Ephesus to us so that we may understand how our hearts in tune with the Spirit are to act out as we speak to one another, as we sing to one another, as we interact with one another, and as we uh, give thanks to God. If we look specifically at the giving of thanks, and we'll look at these participles individually, giving thanks, we'll look at four different ideas here that are presented in the verse. The what, the who's, the when, and the whom. The what is first here of the giving of thanks, is what are we to give thanks for? I think we see it's very clear in our text that we are always to give thanks for all things, for all things we are to give thanks to God. What a testimony it is to those in the world around us when we are able to thank God for all things. Because we as Christians are to be ordered from greater to the lesser so that when we get to things that rep represent temporality, that, that only exist in this age, that are passing away. They, they fade away in the light of the greater. We could say from Christ to our very breath. Let us look again to Paul's opening words in chapter 1, because I think he's bringing some things full circle here. He says, in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Consider those opening words of our epistle, of Paul's epistle here. Every spiritual blessing. That means every, every spiritual blessing is that we are without lack in Christ of anything necessary for our salvation. Anything necessary for our eternal security is provided to us in Christ. In Christ, God has provided for our greatest need. Yes, we need food, we need shelter, we need clothing. And we might add to that list many other things as it's related to this age. But our greatest need is eternal life. We may have all those things in abundance, and we know of many people in this age that have those things in abundance. And without eternal security, they are like passing mists. They go about on the wind. They are here today and gone tomorrow. Many times you see with those that have the most, their biggest concern is to keep it. Some of the people with the most money now in in our age are committed to investing in technology that will extend their life. They're seeking eternal life here and the now. And I'm not talking philanthropists who are committed to medical technologies that would be the, for the good of people to, to, to continue to live healthy lives. But I'm talking about those that seek to artificially extend their life in this age because this is all they have. They have all things in our, in relative to us, and yet they have nothing compared to what we have in Christ. All other needs only serve this end. In Paul's letter to the church in Rome, at the end of his theological treatise on the gospel, he he spends 11 chapters metting out the gospel of Jesus Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. He doxologically concludes that he says, Oh, the depths and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And I know we are a Reformed Baptist Church, but you can say amen, brothers and sisters. Because as we see what we have in Christ, it becomes directly correlated to what we are exhorted to in verse 20, that we are to give thanks for all things. For of him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And so we, above all others, 
are able to give thanks for all things. It goes beyond because there are many grateful people that we know in our lives that are not believers. They are grateful to something, though. They're grateful either to themselves for their talents and their achievements. They're grateful to some mystical force in the world that pushes their lives in different directions. They're grateful to their parents and their upbringing. Not that we shouldn't be grateful for good things like that. But here specifically, we are to be thankful for all things in whose name? In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. Calvin says that this is an exercise of which we ought never to grow weary. Because of innumerable benefits which we receive from God yield fresh cause of joy and thanksgiving. It is in Christ Jesus that we are to always give thanks for all things because it is in Christ Jesus, as I said, that we possess all heavenly spiritual blessings. We are drawn by the instruction of our Lord and by our creaturely need to pray to God to give us this day our daily bread. And yet we are also exhorted to understand that man is not to live on bread alone by by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we have these complementing truths that as we pray to the Lord to give us this day our daily bread, we know that it's because we are in need of physical sustenance so that we may continue on and persevere in this life. But it's in the knowledge that the spiritual sustenance we have in Christ is provided daily for our joy and thanksgiving. And it comes in the name of Christ. And so when we give thanks, we give thanks in the name of Christ Jesus. We know the what, all things. We know whose name in Jesus Christ. And now we find when. And we see that it's always or at all times. Here is one of the difficult things as believers that we find this exhortation that we are to thank God at all times. And we would not forget the setting of of Paul when he's penning this letter. He's writing this letter while under Roman imprisonment. He's exhorting these believers to give thanks in all times or all ways. Because he knows who is the one that directs all things. He knows that it is, in, it is in God we live and move and have our being. And so where we are and what is happening to us is not outside the purview of that which he affirmed that all things are working together for the good of those who love him. And that good is that we are conformed to the image of Christ. We say we love Christ. We desire to be like him. And our faithful God conforms us to Christ. John Gill says that this is to be done always, this giving thanks at all times, in times of adversity, desertion, temptation, affliction, and persecution, as well as in prosperity. I'm reminded of the, the uh, proverb that says that, that we ask God, oh Lord, give me just enough. Don't give me too much that I lose connection and don't rely on you and don't give me too little that I profane your name. 
We were to be thankful at all times. Even in adversity, desertion, temptation, affliction, and persecution. We don't rejoice in wrongdoing, even if it's perpetuated against us in the sense that we rejoice in iniquity. But we rejoice knowing that nothing can come to us that has not at first touched or had been in the mind of God. And if we are in Christ, as it comes to us, it works for our good. Our thanksgiving may be through tears. An unrelieved distress, but it will be all the more real because of it. How much more thankful are we when the sun is not shining upon us? How much more, how much more real is our thanksgiving when it's done in the pit of despair. We know what to be thankful for. We know in whose name and we know when. Well, to whom? We are thankful in the name, we're to be thankful in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To whom? To God and even the Father. This practice should not be considered apart from the second participle of singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. These songs have a distinct ability to implant good theology within us. And as we are circumspect about our singing, they also have the distinct ability to implant bad theology in us. Little children, watch what you hear. But as they are for the good... Many of our hymns are shaped toward moving the singer toward a life of more prayerfulness and thankfulness in all things. For they train us to take all situations before God. We sang this morning, providentially, great is thy faithfulness. We sang that in in that refrain, all I have needed, thy hand hath provided Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. We may pray that or sing that in a prayerful way in all times. In in affliction, in persecution, in distress. Consider the hymn, When the Morning Gilds the Skies, that we are to give thanks always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. When morning gilds the skies, my heart awakening cries, may Jesus Christ be praised. Alike at work and prayer, to Jesus I repair, may Jesus Christ be praised. When sleep her palm denies, my silent spirit sighs, may Jesus Christ Be praised. When evil thoughts molest, with this I shield my breast. May Jesus Christ be praised. Difficult times are obviously a part of our life, and though I can say they're not at least uh, extremely a part of mine now. These words 
rest on times past. Does sadness fill my mind? A solace here I find. May Jesus Christ be praised. Our fades my earthly bliss. My comfort still is this. May Jesus Christ be prayed. And as we consider this understanding, and I, I love how this hymn teaches us this refrain. Uh, and as it turns here, we, we have this very much on earth, may Jesus Christ be praised. This understanding that we are to praise God in all things. And then it turns from the earthly to the heavenly. And it says, in heaven's eternal bliss, the loveliest strain is this. May Jesus Christ be praised. Consider, church, that this morning as we praise Christ, that it is the loveliest strain on earth and in heaven May Jesus Christ be praised. The powers of darkness fear when this sweet chant they hear. May Jesus Christ be praised. Let earth's wide circle round in joyful notes resound. May Jesus Christ be praised. Let air and sea and sky from depth to height reply. May Jesus Christ be praised. Be this while life is mine, my canticle divine. May Jesus Christ be praised. Be this the eternal song through all the ages on. May Jesus Christ be praised. Now we are to give thanks always for all things. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To God even the Father. May Jesus Christ be praised. Oh, what a difficult lesson it is to the heart that is constantly wandering, wondering when, when, oh Lord, will my heart's desires come true if we hold out that what our hearts desire is what's best for us. And so we must fade back into the word of God and know that what is best for us is what the Lord has provided. And we take this humility of mind into being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. We'll have ample opportunity to talk about this idea of subjection, especially as it relates to uh, the home in the coming weeks. But in this way, before he addresses wives and husbands and children and parents and masters and, and servants, he says that we would be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. He doesn't, he's not trying to level all orders of society and all ordering of creative, uh, creational orders. But he is trying to say that the mind and the heart in each of those areas is the same, that we are to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Just three thoughts as it relates to this. First, what is opposed to this exhortation? Let us understand what is opposed to being subject to one another. It's none other than pride. However, since there is nothing more opposed to the human spirit than the desire to submit to others, Paul calls us to it by reminding us of the reverence we owe to Christ. He is the only one who can tame our rebelliousness 
and subdue our pride so that we shall be willing to serve our neighbors. Another commentator says, Pride is the greatest besetting sin of our fallen nature. In our unregenerate state, it rules, reigns, and tyrannizes. And in our regenerate state, it still harasses, entangles, and tempts us in all we do. Some are proud of their learning, some of their ignorance. Some are proud of their, of their intelligence and some of their stupidity. In this life, we will not be without trouble, and God has ordered it that he has not yet delivered us from the presence of sin, and so we must constantly fight back the tide of swelling pride in our hearts that prevents us from showing respect and love to one another in the fear of Christ. What is, though, commended in this exhortation? Turn with me to Romans, chap Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and practicing hospi hospitality, blessing those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be, patient, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head, and do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I believe that is an extended exposition of of being subject to one another. It's an extended exposition even beyond that as we recognize it being in the law of the fifth commandment. For in the fifth commandment, in the ordering of children to parents, it's the ordering of all society that all uh, proper authority is to be subject to. And yet, in that, we are to approach each other, even equals, with humility of mind, in the fear of Christ. And that is what is my third thought, is that what is the source and example of this exhortation? For we look to ourselves and we find, often we find nothing but pride. We find nothing but striving. We find nothing but dissension. Nothing but vengeance. And so we are turned to Christ. 
we are to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. This fear of Christ is reverence. It is to give consideration to the person and work of Christ. It was the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead that superintended Paul to contemplate this in Philippians 2. That same spirit at work in the resurrection of Christ is the same spirit at work just a couple pages over in my book, in my Bible, to Philippians 2. He says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, he says three things there, this triplet of meanings, all meaning the same thing. If any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than themselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves and, and here's the turn, here's the source, here's the exemplar, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not reg regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as man, he humbled, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How can we be subject to one another? Because we are to do it in reverence of Christ. We are to do it in the fear of Christ. We are to do it in, in the spirit of Christ. In the love of Christ. It is clear when we consider Christ who he is. The very son of God. What he has done given his very life for ours how he has given it to us freely, without cost, at least without, without merit of you, you need not earn it, how that giving is expressed in our lives through thanksgiving and here with respect and subjection to one another. As I said, I, I think this all is couched in the idea of being filled in the spirit and I think it's also easily in connection with the previous uh, participle, that we are to make melody in our hearts. And I'm again reminded of another hymn, and I'll close with the last few verses of when this passing world is done. When I stand before the throne dressed in beauty not my own, when I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then how much I owe. When the praise of heaven I hear, loud as thunders to the ear, loud as many waters noise, sweet as harps melodious voice, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. Chosen not for good in me, wakened up from the wrath to flee, hidden in the Savior's side by the Spirit sanctified. And here is our prayer this morning. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we do give you thanks this morning. We thank you, Lord, that 
all of our lives are mapped in our minds and yet guided and directed and covered in your grace so that as we recall those moments and maybe we live through those moments now of hardship, of trial, of affliction, that it is sweetness to us, that though the tears are bitter, oh Lord, your spirit is sweet. The gospel assures us that all has been done on our behalf, that all spiritual blessings are ours in Christ. And so you are not, we are not lacking in anything. For you provide all good things to your people. Help us, Lord, on earth to show by our love how much we owe. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.